Welcome to Nuclecast, the official podcast of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Our host is Dr. Adam Laufer, co-founder and vice president for research at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. The ANWA Deterrence Center is a 501c3 organization ensuring a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent and its ongoing modernization. Thank you for listening and welcome to the show. The views of the host and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another episode of Nuclecast. Of course, I'm your host, Adam Lowther, and this is episode two of our discussion with Tom Ramos. We were, you know, he wrote a book here recently from Berkeley to Berlin. So pick it up if you don't have it. And it's a it's a look at these early years in the, in the development of, of America's nuclear arsenal. And it looks at the labs and the scientists and who is involved. And Tom, I mean, he spent his career at Livermore, so he's lived a lot of this, but then he went back even further beyond his career. And so we we talked a lot in the first episode about Oppenheimer and what was true and what wasn't true. And then the, the one question that we didn't really answer in episode one, because I want to get to January 1961 when Kennedy comes to power and then sort of this buildup of the arsenals and Livermore starts, you know, it starts to play a big important role and we get the division of who's developing what warheads and this competition between labs. But let's, so recently Oppenheimer was, was essentially, you know, exonerated. He was, what's that? Canonized. Yeah. Yeah. So, so my question for you is, you know, the, the sort of the end of the movies, this very challenging, you know, it's, he's railroaded, but in reality, you know, it's, you know, you and I both held the, the appropriate clearances as, as well. And I cannot imagine that either one of us would have been granted a clearance with a similar background. So, you know, for Oppenheimer, I think every, even, you know, Edward Teller says in the movie, you know, he is a, you know, he is an American that loves this country. And, and I, I don't think anybody really doubts that, but it's the the question of access to highly classified information and, and the ability to sort of maintain that classified information in a secure manner. So can you maybe give a little bit of insight? On, on this, you know, this investigation that ultimately led to the denial of Oppenheimer's clearance. Was this a railroading of Oppenheimer or was it something different? Okay. Um, I think if I could take it logically, it starts with um, when Oppenheimer accepts uh, the position from Dick Rose to, to start a laboratory, he has to recruit the best scientist he can in America. And at the top of his list is Enrico Fermi, probably one of the greatest physicists of the 20th century. And and he does. And Fermi says, yeah, uh, I'd be happy to join you, but I'd like you to also in, invite my good friend, Edward Teller. And uh, Teller and Fermi met and started a very fairly strong friendship in 1933. Uh, and that lasted, that went for years throughout the 1930s. And, uh, <clears throat> And they had worked together when uh, uh, 
Fermi also helped to get Teller into America out of out of uh, out of uh, Nazi Germany. Anyway, uh, Fermi asked Teller, "Do you think it's possible you can use an atomic bomb to initiate fusion reactions, what we now call thermonuclear reactions, that would make for an even larger bomb?" And Teller thought about it, and he came back. He says, "You know, I think it's possible," and he called. This, the new, that new kind of bomb, a super, the super bomb. And uh, so Teller had the utmost admiration for Fermi, as, as fr frankly any physicist in that day would. And so it became almost, almost like an obsession with Teller to try to figure out how on earth, how would you make this super to work? And when he got to Los Alamos, uh, he got Oppenheimer, gave him permission to create a group that would start designing this super. And uh, Teller did, but they didn't make, Teller did create this group. They didn't make much progress during the war. And towards the end of the war, Oppenheimer went in and, and told Teller, he's disbanding that effort. We're not going to do that anymore. And Teller was extraordinarily dis, 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 disenchanted. He went to Fermi to seek his help, but Fermi was, the, the war was ending and Fermi went back to Chicago where he created a nuclear science institute. And Fermi, I'm sorry, Teller, in frustration, quits Los Alamos and he goes up and he joins Fermi up in Chicago. But then the new director, there's a Norris Bradbury becomes the new director of Los Alamos. He calls up Teller and he asks him to come back to Los Alamos and to reignite work on the thermonuclear weapon. And Teller agrees and he goes back to Los Alamos and Teller then forms a group with very prominent members. He could not, uh, he could not get a lot of members within Los Alamos turns out because of the, I think, in my opinion, the influence that Oppenheimer had as he left. And he, he told the people at Los Alamos, it's immoral to work on that. And many of them, he was quite a hero. Many of them took that seriously. And so there was not that and much. Why didn't, why didn't Oppenheimer, why didn't Oppenheimer stay and continue to run Los Alamos and turn it into the, you know, the lab? I think it was part of his part of his change of personality change when he when he saw that there were casualties. John Wheeler mentioned he says, you know, those people who were close to the fighting, you know, the the in the Pacific, the major weapon killing people were the were the flamethrowers and and the fire bombings of of the Air Force. That's it was horrible then, and and it's as though Oppenheimer were totally clueless about how vicious the war had been. But when he got to see the casualties that had occurred with the uh, atomic bombings, he had this total switch of character. Now, maybe that's one reason. Also, the Soviet Union was now out of the war. So maybe that was another reason. I don't know. But uh, but anyway, he had this change. And so he went back to where he came from. He went back to Berkeley and he worked for Lawrence. And so he, he, he rejoined and he reformed his theoretical physics group in Berkeley. That's, that's, that's what he was doing. Okay. And then Nor Norris Bradbury then takes over Los Alamos and he invites Teller back in and Teller creates this group. It has George Gamoff in it, uh, Stan Ulam, uh, really prominent physicists and mathematicians. And they work on it for a number of years until they finally do come up with a design that's tested in 1952, the Mike device. Now, meanwhile, Oppenheimer had become, the, the Congress had created the Atomic Energy Commission in 1946. And as part of the act, they created a uh, general advisory committee, uh, which would advise the commissioners on, on physics issues and, and nuclear weapons issues. 
And Oppenheimer was chosen to be the chairman of this committee called the GAC. And in that position with the GAC, Oppenheimer then used his political position to then push his, his uh, own political feelings of thermonuclear research. And he, he kept throwing, if you will, he kept throwing wrenches and obstacles into the Atomic Energy Commission that made it more difficult for them to conduct their research. And it was frustrating people like Teller and others who were engaged in that. And once again, Teller finally got to a point where he just quit Los Alamos a second time and went back to Chicago. In the meantime, uh, the Russians detonate their atomic bomb. They become a, a political, a nuclear power. And some politicians now start approaching Lawrence because they go back to Berkeley and they go to Lawrence and they say, you know, they ask him to create another laboratory to design weapons because they felt that there was not enough passion going on at Los Alamos. And Lawrence agreed. He said, they, yeah, they do need more passion. And he agreed, yes, it probably would be good to have a little bit of competition for that. And so he agreed to go ahead and start a second nuclear weapons laboratory. And in November 1952, that would become the Livermore Laboratory. Lawrence already had uh, some work going on. It was an extension of his rad lab in Berkeley, basically. And in, in fact, the first day that Livermore opened up, it was a lot of physicists and engineers just drove over from Berkeley into Livermore. It's about a 45 minute drive. And then that they create this new laboratory. And when a new laboratory is created, uh, their first three tests are absolute debacles. They're all what we call fizzles. They didn't work, especially the third one, which was the thermonuclear test. And the reason was that, that uh, Herb York, who had been chosen by Lawrence to lead the effort out in Livermore, uh, uh, Edward Teller was given a position. He would be the leader of all thermonuclear or all nuclear weapons research because he was the only one that had uh, experience from Los Alamos. Edward, that was not his strength. And he, he held on to ideas from the 1940s, which were not very good. And so they had three failures in a row. And uh, Bradbury back at Los Alamos and uh, Ruby, who is uh, back at the Atomic Energy Commission, uh, these other distinguished individuals were calling to shut down Livermore. That was a bad idea. The whole idea was bad. And it was looking pretty bad, pretty stressful. And uh, especially the third test. In fact, it was so stressful that... Um, at the same time, or two weeks after that test, William Borden, who had been a, a, a congressional staffer for the Joint Committee on Atomic Energy, had written a letter to J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, stating that Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer's wife, his mistress, and his brother were card-carrying communists, that Oppenheimer himself was actively engaged in communist activities, and most notably that, that Oppenheimer had lied to security investigators about attempts of the Communist Party to secure atomic secrets from him when he led the atomic, uh, when he led the Manhattan Project. And Hoover takes that up to President Eisenhower. Eisenhower reads it and he just gave out an executive order. Now, these are the days of the Rosenberg trial. Klaus Fuchs had just been convicted in England of being a communist spy. They had communist spies coming out of the woodwork. And Eisenhower created an executive order that any person possessing a clearance that had any kind of behavior that was suggestive of, of abnormal would be immediately investigated, have their clearance investigated, have their clearance revoked, and then be investigated. And clearly, Oppenheimer's behavior called to that. And so Eisenhower then ordered the Atomic Energy Commission to revoke 
Oppenheimer's clearance, which they did. Strauss was the commission he did, and they announced it to, to Oppenheimer. Now, Oppenheimer <clears throat> knew he had lied because he would later admit it. He had, and, and there was no real reason for him to hold on to a clearance. His behavior was substandard, but yet he demanded to have a hearing. He, he wanted to do this. Now, why would he have a hearing? He knew that it would come out that he had been lying to, the, he had been lying to investigators about his connections with the Communist Party. So I don't know. It's anyone's guess why he would demand that, but he did. And so this, this hearing would come up, and Strauss decided to take it a step further and not only revoke his clearance, but have him declared a spy for the communist. And the reason, the, the, the evidence he would use was Oppenheimer's, um, the way he stymied the thermonuclear research going on in the United States, that that was all part and parcel of his collaborations with the Soviet Union. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but that became the thing. And so it went in. And then uh, to get evidence of that, who, who, is, who is the Atomic Energy Commission going to ask but the people at Berkeley and in Livermore to, to testify how we'd stymied thermonuclear research? And that would include Lawrence, Louis Alvarez, a man named David Griggs, Glenn Seaborg. All of these people working at the laboratory were, were going to be the big witnesses. And it was very disturbing for Lawrence to have to testify against his former friend, his, his colleague. And on his way to give the testimony, uh, he was uh, accosted by several people, including one of the commissioners in the Atomic Energy Commission, that oh, you're, being a, you're just being a McCarthyist, you know, you're just going after Oppenheimer because of his fame or something. And it so upset uh, Lawrence that that evening at a banquet, he, uh, he went to the bathroom and he started vomiting up blood. He called his brother, who was a doctor, and his brother heard that and ordered him immediately back to Berkeley. And so Oppenheimer was spared being a uh, witness, but he did come up with a deposition. He wrote a deposition about how Oppenheimer had been had been screwing up the thermonuclear research. But Edward Teller did go in. He did give a testimony, and that was broadcast on newscast and that. And for that performance, he was declared a McCarthyist. And for, for being a witness against an American hero, a declared American hero, he was pretty much ostracized by the American physics community. In fact, that upset him so much that Teller came down with an attack of colitis, just as Lawrence had, and he was hospitalized. So you had the two leaders of the laboratory in the hospital from stress. And Herb York, who was running operations, he came down with a thing called valley fever, and he gets bedridden. So the whole leadership of the laboratory is in bed or in the hospital. And uh, that the, the picking up the weapons program from nothing, from three failures, fell on two group leaders, a 28-year-old Harold Brown, who would later be Secretary of Defense, and a 32-year-old Johnny Foster, who would later become the Director for Defense Research and Engineering. And the two of them were group leaders, and they came in, and they within 30 days, they wrote what I call a manifesto, but they wrote a document to the uh, engineers and scientists at the lab that we're not going to follow Edward Teller anymore. We're going to start on a new track do our own designs, and they did. And immediately, the next year, they conducted two tests. And in both tests, they set records, and they revolutionized the design of a nuclear weapon. They were trying to make weapons much smaller, because around this time, 1955, 1956, there, a, a big argument grew up in Washington. And the, the President Eisenhower's strategy at the time was called massive retaliation. And that is, if the Russians did some aggression in Europe, like they were planning to do, to take over Germany. 
then the response of the United States would be to use the entire nuclear force of the United States to attack Russia as a massive retaliation. And uh, there were policy analysts at Livermore, working at Livermore, who disagreed with that. They said, that's not going to work for obvious reasons. And they came up with an alternative plan called Counterforce. And they really worked with the physicists at Livermore to design weapons much more smaller so that they could be much more compatible with this new Counterforce strategy, which called for not destroying cities, but going after the military strength of the Soviets. In other words, go after the ability of the Soviets to conduct war, and that's what should be your targets. Don't start targeting these cities. And that called for much more accuracy. That also, but big for Livermore, it called for making weapons much smaller. In fact, uh, at that time, Ollie Burke became the chief of naval operations, and he suggested that one weapon we could use against the Soviets would be a submarine launching a missile from underwater. You can't sneak attack a submarine. And the reason for that is Rand Corporation had come up with a study and they realized that if the Soviets did launch an attack in Western Europe and to forestall the United States from launching their atomic bombs against the Soviet Union, they would go to each strategic air command air base and drop an atom bomb on it and destroy all of the atomic weapons in the United States, the whole nuclear deterrent force of the United States in one fell swoop in a surprise attack. And the study showed they could do it. They, it was a year-long study, and these were big names. Andy Marshall, Herman Kahn. These were big, big... Uh, 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 Albert, uh, anyway, they came to the conclusion that the Soviets really could do this, and that started this big dilemma. And then Burke came up with the idea of, well, let's launch them from a submarine. The problem with that was a submarine missile was much smaller than an ICBM and would require a much smaller warhead. In fact, a warhead four times smaller than the existing smallest warhead, which was on the Atlas. It would have to be less than a thousand pounds. And Livermore did it. Uh, Edward Teller did stand up at the meeting and told at a meeting in Massachusetts, and he told Admiral Burke that the Livermore lab could give him a warhead that would fit inside a submarine launched missile. And in fact, they did it. By 1959, they had it. And when the Polaris was launched in 1960, each Polaris submarine had 16 Livermore warheads in it uh, that were thermonuclear warheads, that, and that weapon could reach any kind of military targets within Russia. Most importantly, it could even reach Moscow. And that came on just as Kennedy became president. And right after Kennedy was inaugurated, he had a, a summit meeting with Khrushchev now, in Vienna, Austria. And when he, he arrives there, Khrushchev demands, he, he, he gives Kennedy an ultimatum and demands that Kennedy remove all American forces out of Berlin because the Red Army in six months is going to occupy Berlin. And so Kennedy looks at him and realizes he's not going to do that. He's not going to submit two and a half million West Germans to communism. And he comes back and his face is white. I've, I've seen pictures of him at this time. His face is white. He comes back to his National Security Council and he says, gentlemen, we are going to have a thermonuclear war in six months because he knows he's not going to pull out of Berlin. He knows the Red Army is going to come in. There's going to be fighting and it's going to quickly escalate. He goes over to the Pentagon and he, and he says, uh, what, he meets with General Lucius Clay, who's responsible for the defense of Germany. He says, General, what's the plan? He says, well, sir, if the Red Army invests Berlin, then we're going to have a tank heavy task force come out of Frankfurt. And any Russian formations that come to us will have to respond with tactical nuclear weapons. And Lawrence says, and Kennedy says, okay, 
there is no choice for this. Kennedy issues four executive orders during this period all around Berlin. And Kennedy comes back and he says, we're going to have a war. And he starts a program building uh, fallout shelters all over the nation to protect the country because he's certain we're about to go to war. But then we have the Polaris now goes on station and Kennedy realizes that, that Khrushchev knows Khrushchev can't do what he's doing without destroying himself. And that reassures Kennedy and gives him the backbone to stand up to Khrushchev and say, we're not moving. You're not, you're not taking over West Berlin. Khrushchev blinks. He takes a step back and he builds the Berlin Wall, which then uh, that was ends the crisis. So the Berlin Wall was built to, to stop this nuclear crisis back in 1961. And Kennedy, six months later, realizes how much that ability to deter Khrushchev and have a strong, reliable uh, nuclear deterrent force, how important that was to averting that nuclear war. He flies out to Berkeley and he meets with the scientists. And he meets with those physicists. And in front of a crowd of 85,000 people, he tells them that he has come to an uncomfortable truth that he owes more to Berkeley than he does to Harvard, which is quite an admission from a Harvard graduate. And then he thanks the physicist for averting a nuclear war. And it was the first test of our deterrent strategy in the Cold War, and we passed it. And as I mentioned earlier, this, this crisis was more serious than the Cuban crisis. And we really almost came to total thermonuclear war, and we averted it. And Kennedy knew why we averted it. It was because we had a good, strong uh, nuclear deterrent strategy. And it was a plan that, that he accepted, and, and it worked. And it's been working ever since. So there we go. How's that? This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the Anwa Deterrent Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> <laughs> that is um, you know it's it's part of the story we don't often hear. You know, so if you read Friedman or you read some of the deterrence thinkers you'll get sort of the strategy and the psychology but you never hear the like real stories of the people and the things that people said and the gambles that were made and how those gambles came out and the influence of the personalities and yeah. you know it's it's kind of hard for people you know I read a lot of biography because you know I'm always looking for what, what lessons can I learn from people who have been really, really good at what they did. And one of the things that you learn about great people is that, you know, they're, they tend to be really good at one or two things and they tend to be horrible at others. You know, <laughs> if, if they're a brilliant physicist, then they you know, they're a terrible parent or spouse, you know, they're, they can't be good at everything. And so as you look at all these, you know, these, not just Oppenheimer, but Teller and Alvarez and Lawrence and all of these brilliant, I mean, truly brilliant people that sort of led to the greatest scientific breakthroughs of our age, they were very complicated people. And, and it's sort of any wonder to me that they were all able to, to get along well enough to make these things happen because they are strong personalities, yeah. you know, brilliant people are like that. So is there, are there any more sort of really interesting or things that we might've never heard 
about the actual people and the physicists and sort of how they were, um, you know, did, you know, you've read there, heard the stories. I forget which one of the rock singers that always wants M&Ms in his dressing room at a performance, but he wants like no yellow ones, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, well, are there any of those great kind of stories? Yeah. yeah uh, well, within Livermore, um, I, I talk about a passing of the baton. You know, Lawrence was this phenomenal leader in the 1940s and the early 1950s and getting the laboratory started. Uh, but, he, but, he, but he passed the baton to an, another generation of physicists led by Herb York. And they had their differences a little bit, but it never came out in the open because as I think you just mentioned, they were, they were above that. They were above that. They had, uh, so there were kind of two camps. What I noticed was, there, and they were very obvious to me when I arrived at the laboratory in 81. But in one camp, you had the ultra- deterrent people that, that did not trust the Russians two feet. You know, they, they wouldn't, they wouldn't trust the Russians as far as you can throw them literally. And that was Teller. And an advocate similar to him would be Johnny Foster. Who kind of Johnny Foster was similar in uh, uh, peace to strength kind of, kind of thing. Now that the other camp was Herb York, Harold Brown and Mike May. And uh, they were they really wanted to get some arms control stuff going because they felt, well, we, we've done it. We got our deterrent force going. Now we need to get some sort of agreement with the Soviets so we quit building all these weapons and try, try to get some control over it. And what there's a tendency among pundits, pundits and analysts, analysts and all that. But I've spoken to all of these. I've met all of these those gentlemen I just mentioned. Uh, they were all strictly advocates of deterrence. There's not a doubt in their minds you needed to have a deterrent force. It was just how you applied it. They're, they're more the way you did it. They differed, but they each respected each other. They respected each other's opinion and they were all after the bottom line was to protect our society from, from a total, a total uh, uh, despotic thing like, like the communist uh, Russia or now communist China. So the, how they handled it was, was spectacular. So uh, some examples, Lawrence himself was a very much pro strength kind of guy. But when Eisenhower asked him to lead a committee to make a, a test ban work, Lawrence said, yes, sir. And he, he worked as hard as he could to make that test ban work. And his job was to make sure we could, you know, test it and assure it. And in the same way, uh, people don't know this, but when we had the SALT talks in, in the 1970s, especially SALT 2, well, SALT 1, Harold Brown was, the major, was a major arch- architect of the SALT talks. Now, Jimmy Carter really did rely on his Secretary of Defense, Harold Brown. Brown did that. In Salt II, under Nixon, a major architect that set up the parameters within the Pentagon was Johnny Foster. You know, again, on that other side, but Johnny, given the mission, he made that he made it work. He made it work, and, and although he, you know, he, he just made sure we had a viable deterrent force, but he would fulfill the wishes of the president. So that was the kind of what I saw among these giants. I call them giants, these, these guys. And, of course, Mike May is very active with um, CZAC at Stanford University, the, the Center for uh, Strategic Arms Control and others. He's been very active in that. And, and he and I even, uh, Mike and I have even had some discussions about, about arms control and limits. Or not that, but I have the utmost respect for him. He respects my opinion. And we're both after the same thing. And how exactly we achieve it may be different. But I respect them and, and I respect them with all my heart. So I think 
I don't know. You're right. I think your observations are right. I don't know how else to describe it, but these these individuals who are bigger than life, they were not. They were not. You either do it my way or no way. They would they would work, and they appreciated the intelligence of the other person, who may be coming at it at a slightly different angle, but say, well, how can we? We both agree we need to deter the Soviet Union or Communist China from attacking our country. How uh, now? We may disagree how to best achieve that, but what can we do to make still make the end work, kind of thing, and and that's a healthy, and you get the benefit of both sides doing that, if that makes sense to you. Absolutely. So we're running out of time, but again, <laughs> before, uh, again, it always happens. But this time, this time, I am going to do what I would normally do with a guest, and that is, I'm going to bring my genie Bob out. I'm going to rub my magic lamp, and of course, you get three wishes. Now, those wishes have to pertain to the topics we've been talking about. I mean, you can okay. sort of wish into the future, of course. But, uh, you know, you, you can't wish for a billion dollars or, you know, a supermodel or anything like that. You got to stick to the topic. And so if if you can, Bob's going to grant you those three wishes. Uh, what what might those wishes be? All right, Adam. Um, as we've been talking about, we've had a nuclear deterrent for 72 years now, and it works. It was designed to deter a massive missile attack over the North Pole coming to our country. And it works. It works really well. Today, we have a Xi Jinping regime in China. We have a Putin regime in Russia. And both of them in their military journals have said that a tactical nuclear weapon would not necessarily start World War III. And we should all feel very troubled about that. That's an extremely troubling statement for them to make. Now, our nuclear deterrent force did not deter Putin from invading Ukraine. It's not going to deter Xi Jinping from invading Taiwan. And so my wish is that we could have the wherewithal, the energy, and, and, and uh, the determination to come to grips with we have to develop a deterrent force that will deter those two despots from starting a regional conflict that would, could easily grow into a thermonuclear war. Okay, so wish number one. What's your next wish? <laughs> well, that's kind of a big you one. Got, you, yeah, that's a big one. If but I got, you got two one, more. If I got that one, <laughs> that, would, that would that would serve me well. And and, and I uh, is either a cold beer or something else. After that, nothing else counts for me. Once you <laughs> save the world, you just have a yeah. Cold then you beer. give me a cold Call beer, make my kegerator work better, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um, I you know if, so if assuming Bob would give me your wishes, I I would wish that Americans better understood this element of history so that they could understand it. They could know it. They could know what it meant for them. And, you know, I often tell people that, you know, people, you know, we've heard about the trillion dollar triad and we can't afford it. And I, you know, I say, well, Hey, wait a second. You know, that's malarkey because Medicare and Medicaid lose 70 to 80 billion dollars a year in waste fraud and abuse. That's far more than we spend on nuclear weapons and it's far more than it would take to modernize everything. But yet you don't even know we lose that much. And so the simple fact is we can afford all of it. We can afford what we're doing and more and not even blink an eye because the federal government spends so much money on so many wasteful things that this is something that 
relatively speaking, it's prevented great power war. It's made our allies be less willing to go to war. It's saved countless lives. It's reduced defense budgets because when you're not fighting great power conventional wars, you spend less on war. And what it's done is it's allowed the United States to then take all those resources we're not spending. You know, World War II was half the GDP of the country. And then we can go invent iPhones. And then we can buy, you know, we, we have this wealth to where we live in, you know, the houses are more than twice as big as they were in 1945. We've got more cars. We've got televisions. We've got cell phones. We've got so much stuff that now we're all unhappy because we've got too much stuff. <laughs> but I would say nuclear weapons and the peace and the stability and the reduction in expenditures they provide have enabled that to happen. And I wish people understood the role nuclear weapons played in shaping, you know, our prosperous present. That would be my wish. I'd steal your wish if Bob would let me do that. Sure. Great, Adam. I well certainly so that, that, that would be great. Let me remind everybody from Berkeley to Berlin, Tom Ramos. And, uh, you know, it's a great book written by somebody who spent decades on the job doing it and knew many of these folks and, you know, experienced it himself and talked to the, the participants and the players. So grab a copy of the book, read it, educate yourself on this history. And of course, Tom, thanks for coming on Nuclecast. Thanks for telling us this history. My pleasure, Adam. It's my pleasure. And thanks to you, the listeners. Hopefully you've enjoyed episode one and episode two. They were great episodes to talk about Oppenheimer, to talk about some of this forgotten history. And I found it interesting. So hopefully you did too. So thanks for joining us. And we'll see you next time on Nuclecast. This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrence Center, a 501c3 that seeks to educate key decision-makers, stakeholders, and the public to ensure a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent. Our executive producer is Kimberly Jansen-Tim, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Crumpel. Help us grow our followers by sharing it and follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclear.